0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure seeing you on this first day of the week, as always. Thank you, Mark, for a very insightful lesson for the importance of remembering what Jesus has done for us. Something that God thought important enough to help us remember every week. The only weekly holiday that we have must be pretty important, right? I want to share with you the most quoted verse in the Bible, and it's going to teach us about God's character, as I promised last week. Now, if I ask you what the most quoted Bible verse is, you're probably going to respond. I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hands or anything, I don't want to embarrass you, but decide in your heart and in your mind which is the most popular verse in the Bible of all time, not in the last 2,000 years, okay, but in of all time. Maybe you would have said John 3.16, right? I mean, uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands again. (laughs) But maybe you said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Many, many people can quote this verse from the heart. And you know what? This may be the most popular in the last 1,000 years or so. But there was another verse in the Bible that was more popular of all time than this one. And it was the most quoted verse in Israel and the most quoted verse part in part and in whole throughout the entire Old Testament. You wanna take a guess at what that verse is? Maybe you don't know, but it's Exodus 34, six through seven. In this verse, it says the Lord, the Lord. Now, when you ever when you see in the new in the NIV translation, the Lord placed in capital letters, that is referring to God's personal name, otherwise known as the Tetragrammaton. That's just a fancy word for saying four letters. It's four Hebrew letters. Uh, usually, we think they are Y H W H. That stands for the personal name. Of God, the name God told Moses, that is his name, which is I am or Yahweh. That's what that means when Lord is capitalized right there. So here God is speaking about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So this is how God describes himself to Moses uh, as his glory passes in front of Moses. This is the occasion when Moses is up in Mount Sinai for the second time to get the second copy of uh, the law of God. And Moses feels like he he wants to know God. Who are you, Lord? I want to know who you are. All this time that Moses had been talking to God, Moses was curious and Moses asked God to show him his glory. And we're going to explore later in, in another lesson, perhaps, the significance of this event as we continue exploring the character of God. But this verse, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, is referenced more than 27 times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And most of the time it's referenced in view of God's forgiveness and loving kindness. And we're going to examine those words that are translated as loving and faithfulness and what they really mean in the Hebrew, because the English language doesn't do justice to the actual Hebrew words that God chose to reveal his characteristics. People quoted this verse many, many times through the Old Testament, remembering that God, although it says here that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, most of the references are referring to God's forgiveness and loving kindness by the very people who are trying to return to God because of this continuous invitation to forgiveness that he gives throughout the Old Testament in various different times. Now, verse four, verse six, sorry, verse six here is actually a rhyming poem in the Hebrew. It's a poem. We kind of miss that aspect of the Hebrew Bible because we don't read Hebrew. Many times throughout the Old Testament, certain words are put in poetic fashion and they actually do rhyme in the Hebrew. It kind of shows us that God's a poet himself and God likes to give us things that rhyme, kind of like to make a song out of it. That's why the songs were written. Many of them are poems and they rhyme in the original language. And this particular verse is a rhyming poem in the Hebrew and within here we see five attributes God uses to describe himself. We see here compassionate. We see here gracious. We see slow to anger. We see overflowing with loyal love. That's a that's actually one word in the Hebrew, but it's difficult to capture in the English. So the best the NIV translators have come uh, with is, abounding in love or overflowing with loyal love, as some other translations will say. Eventually, we will uh, get to see what the word actually means. And then last but not least, faithfulness or overflowing, abounding in faithfulness. So verse 7 expands. The next verse actually expands. So verse 6 reveals these characteristics that God is using to describe himself. And this is interesting because it's not something that man has observed about God. Man can say some things about God's character. But doesn't it mean much more when God himself says, this is who I am. This is how I'm describing myself, particularly when Moses asked him to reveal his glory. So in the next verse, what we see here is God expanding upon his overflowing or abounding love and faithfulness. In this verse, he shows how he maintains his love. He maintains these qualities of himself to thousands, to thousands. What does he mean mean there? Thousands of generations, forgiving. How does he do that? Well, he says here by forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion and sin, Yet, he also says he won't leave the guilty unpunished either. This presents a balance to God's character. God's letting us know that he's not a pushover, you know, but at the same time, he is not a vengeful God either. And it's hard for us as humans to take in this description of God and and be impartial or, or be patient in our understanding of his character. Well, what does he mean? We, we tend to focus on this last part of verse 7 that he punishes the children and their children's sin for the, to the third and fourth generation. That kind of tends to draw our attention more than the other things that he described about himself. And so sometimes we're left with this idea of, well, you know, is God uh, angry? You know, is he vengeful? Is he hateful? Why do you want to do this, God? We we cannot imagine a being that is perfect in every way and so transparently asserts the nature of his character without apology and without giving a deeper explanation. God is the only being whose tough side is actually defined by his loving and extra gracious side. That's how we need to see these two verses. Because most of this verse and what God emphasizes on when he is explaining this to Moses is on his forgiving and loving, kindness nature. That's what he decides to focus on. He is not defined, uh, as some people would say, by his anger. Some people will say, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God. And when you ask them, well, what makes you say that or how did you arrive to that conclusion? Because God decides to explain himself in a very different light. He is not an angry God, but he does get angry. Just because some of you might get angry, does that describe you as an angry person? I know I have gotten angry many times in my life, but I don't think some people have described me as an angry person. Just because you get angry doesn't mean you're an angry person. Certainly God is not vengeful. He's not out to exact vengeance. That's not how he describes himself at all in these verses. So to us, it's kind of hard to take in these words and find this balance that God is trying to present to us here. These are not empty words either. As we look at the events surrounding God's declaration of his character, we quickly find out the truth of this declaration. He is not kidding over And over again, throughout the stories we see in the Old Testament, we see how God is defined by the compassion that he shows his people, believers and unbelievers alike, by the grace that he shows in particular to his covenant people. That is what we find throughout the history of God trying to make a covenant and establish a covenant with his people. We ought to be at peace now, looking at this much, much later on in the story through the eyes of Christ, through the vision Christ has afforded us now in the New Testament, when we go back and read these words, we ought to be at peace knowing the nature of our God is overflowing in loyal love. And that, again, is another Hebrew word we're going to examine. Loyal love to those who desire a relationship with Him. God's compassion, His love, His grace, as he shows here, actually tip the scales of his need to address sin by punishment, indicating God's overwhelming nature of grace and compassion. And that's contrasted in this verse 7 here. I want you to notice something about this verse. Notice how he says he maintains his love. He keeps his love to Thousands, yet punishes to the third and to the fourth. See, in the actual Hebrew, that word that I underline up here, thousands, uh, uh, sorry, that, that word generation at the end there that I idolized is actually not present in the text. It's something that we presume, so we added, and in some versions it's idolized, italicized for that particular reason. Uh, it's, it's understood by context that he means generation. So you may wince at the fact that God will not let the guilty go unpunished, speaking to his justice. Yet that is true, notice, only to the third and to the fourth, compared with what? The thousands to Whom he maintains his love. Do you see a tipping of the scales there? I mean, we may as human beings take issue that God is going to punish to the third and to the fourth. But what we don't realize is that God is trying to tell us that he overwhelmingly, that his grace and that his compassion tip the scales in favor to maintain his love for thousands of generations, even though they might not deserve it. And that is what speaks to God's character, overflowing with love, overflowing with kindness. And that, brothers and sisters, presents such a stark contrast from the idea of what man thought gods were supposed to be at the time. The idolatry that existed at that time uh, reflected men's idea of what they thought gods were like to them. They were always angry. I mean, they were vengeful. You, All you have to do is take a look at Greek mythology. And those gods don't seem like nice people when you read about all the mythology and the stories behind them. Talk about vengeful. Talk about angry. Talk about uh, exacting, uh, toying with mankind as if they were puppets. And that, of course, I'm speaking to Roman and Greek mythology, which was much, much later in the picture, but that is a reflection of even the idolatry that was around the time of Abraham and Moses. And we're in the time of Moses here when God reflects this. Why is that? Well, these the idea of gods or what man thought God was is limited, very limited. Think about this. You know, our understanding of nature still at this point uh, in 2020 is still very limited uh, as far as many things are concerned. Way back then, even more limited, they still contradicted uh, each other, uh, coming across as very vindictive, coming across as very angry. I guess that's how they interpreted events at the time because they thought Different gods controlled the weather or earthquakes or thunder and things like that. And every single indication of whatever they saw displayed in nature caused them to fear. I remember doing a lesson a long time ago about the fish tank analogy. Uh, I used to keep a, a fish tank in a friend's academy and I taught marine biology. It was a really nice, I think, 100-gallon saltwater fish tank. And I learned something about our nature as people or even animals and as I approached every time that what I would approach the tank to feed the fish or to do something for the fish my intentions were to take care of them and to help them thrive but animals tend to interpret our gestures with fear don't they every time we try to get close to them you know they're always uh, on guard (laughs) on high alert oh what is this person going to do They're defensive in their actions. Even when our motives, of course, they can't read our motives. But even though our motives may be to help, they get very defensive. And we see the same thing in people. Particularly when people didn't have that understanding and attributed all these things to the false gods. But now here comes Yahweh, the Lord. And he is trying to give us a different picture. He's trying to give humanity, starting with Abraham. Than certainly with Moses, he says, I'm not like that. I'm different. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate God, full of mercy and loving kindness. What a stark contrast to what the people were used to hearing about the false gods that others were promoting. What What a good news. What a different news was this Yahweh bringing to those generations at that time. Here we have God finally revealing himself to Moses a little bit, you know, as much as Moses was able to take. The Bible says that nobody got as close to God as Moses. He was God's friend. No man came as close to Yahweh and speaking face to face as Moses. Uh, And of course, then came Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, to get close to us, right? What a difference uh, from this moment then to the moment when the Son of Man is revealed. And no wonder now we understand why that verse in Exodus was the most quoted verse throughout the Hebrew Bible. The Israelites, knowing God's good nature even though they still rebelled and took advantage of his grace over and over again, exhausting God, exhausting his patience, exhausting his grace by their many spiritual adulteries. I mean, how would you feel if someone wanted to partner with you, but continually violated your partnership every way imaginable? would you still want to hold on to that person in partnership? Or would you be like, uh, look, I've had enough. <laughs> See you later. I'm cutting off our partnership here. I don't think you're serious. And God felt that way and he shows it. He's not apologetic in showing us how much these adulteries and these violations of the partnership hurt him. The prophets and the Psalms are full of God showing his heart and being transparent with us about how he feels when we mistreat or violate that partnership or take advantage of his grace. I can say that none of us would be able to live up to the patience and forgiveness that God has demonstrated to us throughout the generations. If anything, the record of the Bible shows us That this God, Yahweh, has been so merciful and such a kind God throughout the generations to come. That now, even after Jesus Christ, it would be very reasonable. It would be something that would make us say, "Wow, I do want to partner with this God. This God is amazing. Look at what he's done. And yet, in light of all that evidence, we still hear a lot of fake news about who God is supposed to be or about what God is not, instead of us learning and accepting God's revelation of himself. I think that we can appreciate attention in these verses, Exodus 36, verse 6 and 7. We can appreciate attention in how God reveals his character, because we have a tension between God's overflowing love and faithfulness and the judgment that he exercises. And and we don't like that because that also, in a way, reveals a tension that exists in us as human beings. We all wish everything would be peachy keen. We all, all wish all of our relationships were great. And that there wouldn't be any need for any kind of confrontation all the days of our lives. But that's uh, la-la land, right? That doesn't exist here in the flesh. We have to put up with tension in our relationships all the time, even amongst people that we largely agree with. And God shows us that there is a tension also that he has to put up with, particularly with his covenant people as well. This tension though in God, we can learn a lot from him, is balanced. This tension in God actually goes way overbalanced. God favors tipping the scales of this tension towards his overflowing love and his grace. Oftentimes in us, what does that tension cause us to do? Often in us, We allow that tension, the negative aspect of it, to bring us down, perhaps, to make us frustrated, perhaps, to uh, make us negative, to make us uh, pessimists, all these negative things. Even at such a time right now, I mean, we could say a lot of things about what has happened in 2020, and most of them are not good things. But how many of us, though, in light of all the negative things that many of us have experienced, can actually say, and particularly even so this Thursday when we're having meals with our family and focusing on being thankful, how many of us are going to learn from God and learn to tip the scales despite what has happened, despite that tension that we feel that is very real, how much in control are we? to tip the scales and allow ourselves to be defined as children of God by our compassionate and by our kind nature, deciding to walk in the footsteps of Yahweh and not being defined by the negative things that happen to us. That's one thing that we can learn from this tension that we see here in God's character. In humans, sometimes we even might say that, this tension leads to character flaws, or that some of the character flaws that we might see in people are the result of having this kind of tension and not knowing how to deal with it. (laughs) Uh, That's some of the things that I shared in the spiritual maturity series that we did uh, last month. We become angry, we become easily manipulated, rebellious, uncaring, Uh, and you'll see in the course of our study on God's character that God's anger, which is something that often comes up in our character when we feel this tension, God's anger is not the motive behind his judgment. That may surprise you by me saying that. But as I've studied more and more the nature of judgment in the scripture and how God describes his judgment, I assumed before that it was a result of his anger. But I'm going to show you through the course of the following series that anger is probably not the motive. Matter of fact, I'm sure it is not. And we will see how that works. At least not the judgment people suffer. Not the judgment people may think God is giving them and they might misjudge God and say that he's an angry God. His anger or his wrath, yes, is against the evil that is perpetuated. Not against the people, but it is against the evil. And it is directed at the evil, not directed at the people. Like we say, hate the sin, but not the sinner, right? Even in ourselves. Yet so many times, though, our anger leads us, we fall trapped to this tension that we perceive in us, and we let our anger lead us to make poor and rash decisions, which is why James says here, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When we give ourselves over to our emotions due to not knowing how to balance that tension we feel in us, it will never lead us to produce the kind of life God wants us to lead, a righteous life. That's why it's important for us to learn how to deal with these things. You know, throughout life, as we grow, as we mature, we're always trying to strike the balance of all these things, strike the balance of the tensions, the forces that we feel tugging at our heart here and there. And it's not that much different with God. God says, hey, I deal with that too. I got to put up with you. I got to put up with all these people doing all these crazy things. I got to put up with people wanting to do their own thing while I've created a perfect plan for them. And yet they want to reject that. Yeah, I got to put up with that. Yeah, I feel tense about that. There is a tension that I have about that. But I wish to tip the scales towards being compassionate and overflowing with love and kindness for your sake and because that's who I am. Wow, what a declaration. When we take in those words, we learn about God's character. And we should learn then about how to define ourselves, shouldn't we? If we call ourselves his followers. Those who fail at this tug of war, this tension that we feel in our hearts, you know what they become? I think that's what makes people become hypocrites, because when we don't know how to deal with that tension, what do we do? But we play the part. We stop being honest about it. Look how honest God is. God is transparent. He says, yeah, I feel this tension. I got this tension going on here. No thanks to you. <laughs> so he's unapologetic about declaring it and unapologetic about saying, yeah, I'm going to deal with that. You better believe it. But. Thank, you should thank me that I am compassionate and loving kindness. That's who I am. So what does that mean for us? Well, it's hard for anyone to survive the tide of evil that continuously flows over us, in particular from our own hearts, from the plane of existence that we live in. Without the proper context, of course, no one will survive it. We will be given over, as Paul says, to the ebb and flow of every tide and wind of doctrine and the things that come by deceitful scheming. We are helpless when it comes to that. But something that God is always giving us is context. And the greatest context, I think, that I'm learning right now is by learning God's character, how he defines himself in light of the struggle that he's also in. We forget about that sometimes, right? And he decides to look at it in a particular way, reflecting his character. How much should we? What You know, let's take a page from that, especially as his people, as his covenant people, and overcome all the evil, especially the one in our hearts, with the good that we know we can do, because we can decide to do it no matter how we feel, and not give in to that tension, to that tug of war. So how does a faithful and loyal God deal with such an imperfect and rebellious people as us? Why would he want to deal with us at all? Well, the amazing and rich history we find in the Bible gives us the answers to that. God wants a partnership. He wants a partnership with us. Why? Well, We can take a stab at many scriptures that might give us glimpses here and there about the why. But most importantly, love is at the very center of it. Love and a kind of affection that you and I don't know yet. That God loves us and considers us worthy enough to get into this partnership with. I like to see... I like to think about Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. I think it gives me a good glimpse of this partnership, a good explanation as to the why God is doing something with us. Because after all, we are one of the weakest things in all of this creation of heaven and earth. We, we were made lower than the angels, as the Hebrew author talks about. We die. <laughs> we're, we're probably the only creatures that God has made that are subject to imperfections and death and weaknesses. Of the flesh anyway. But Paul reveals something here through the Spirit. He says this grace, and the word grace here is the word gift, the uh, in the Greek. This grace, this great gift was given to me, says Paul, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, what was God's intent? What was his motive? Was that now, speaking in the present, through the church, his covenant people, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. these are perhaps some of the most heady things that we can find in the Bible. What are you saying here, Paul? We have to, and we can make a whole lesson about what Paul is revealing here. But notice how he first describes Jesus' grace as the boundless riches given to his people, and how now we are tasked as his covenant people to make plain to everyone else the administration of this mystery. What's the mystery? That God is manifesting his manifold wisdom. The word manifold means multi-leveled through the church. God is using the church. He's using you and me, his covenant people, to what? To tell something to give an example, to show something. To who? Well, it says here, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm. There is a point God wants to make, not just to people here in this earth, in this temporary existence, but there is an eternal impact God is looking to make using little old me. (laughs) using little old us, using little old, weak, pathetic, totally limited us, not, not with understanding, totally clueless. Yet God wants to use us to show his manifold wisdom to the powers and authorities in the heavenly Rounds. And that's why Paul describes in Ephesians chapter six, a few chapters later, why the battle that we fight here is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers. And in Ephesians six, he specifies of darkness here in Ephesians. The powers are not specified as just those of darkness in Ephesians three, verse 10. It's in general that he's going to make a point to it. But in Ephesians chapter six, we have to remember that the battle that we fight is against the spiritual powers of darkness. So we have to understand the more that we get the context of what we're doing here and what is going on and what is the purpose and the goal of what God is trying to do, the more we get to know God and are defined by his character and allow ourselves to be defined by that, the more our life is going to make sense and the less we're going to get tugged by all these other influences that are going nowhere, that are trying to lead you into nothing. That have no purpose in the eternal scheme of things. I think that people who shortchange themselves and opt out or don't want to understand those things, I think that's how they come to be like the man here in the parable of the talents, the man that accused God. Uh, he said, "Master, I knew. Look how look how the presumption is working here. I knew. Yeah, I know. I knew." That you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold. I don't want any part of this here. This is what belongs to you. I don't want any part of the administration of your mystery. I don't want any part in the work that you're trying to do to show the powers in heaven your manifold wisdom. I opt out. Here's your goal. Here it is. Notice that people who want to opt out, how they tend to judge God. Just like the servant who was given this one talent, people usually fall for the presumptive and unjust judgment of God. And where does that come from? Take a gander. It comes from the powers of Darkness. They're the ones who have something to profit here by deceiving people into not joining God's plan. They know that this is how God can get hurt. It's kind of like in the Superman movies. You've seen some of the Superman movies. Can we hurt Superman? Not really. So how can we make Superman suffer? Hurt Lois Lane, right? (laughs) Hurt the people he cares for. That's the only way we can get back at Superman. Can we hurt Yahweh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Can, is there a way that we can overcome him? The spiritual powers of darkness know that there is no way that that can happen. But what do they aim to do? How can they cause God to feel this tension, this uncomfortability, this hurt? They already know how turning you, his creation, against him. That's how they do it. And so they rejoice whenever they triumph at deceiving somebody into turning against God, just like this man with the one talent. Like I repeated last time, this is why I think that we really need to know God. Get to know God. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what it's about, knowing God. God already knows us inside and out. He wants you to partner with him. He wants you to know him. It's about knowing him. It's about letting us be defined by the life that he has set apart for us As the church, it's all about relationships. Jesus showed us, as Mark so eloquently taught us here in the Lord's Supper lesson, how much he values us. He showed us that there is a worth in us. By leaving perfection behind, by leaving bliss behind, and meeting us face to face unlike any other powerful being or king or person would ever do. He knows we're dense. He knows we're dense enough sometimes to reject reason and follow our empty hearts. So he leaves us. He has left us all throughout history, his calling card, his signature, all throughout history. In archaeological digs, in historical documents, he leaves his signature behind, he leaves his calling card behind Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. All you have to look do is look and use your reason and see that the empty tomb is the latest calling card Yahweh has left, indicating. That he still wants a partnership, the partnership is still open for you to join him, and he confirmed this message with all kinds of miracles, wonders that not even the enemies of darkness can deny. As Paul, as Peter said in his first gospel sermon. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This message that we proclaim, this mystery, as Paul called it in Ephesians 3, that we now want to make plain to everyone was a message that was confirmed, that it didn't come from human invention or ingenuity but a message that was confirmed by miracles, wonders, and signs by the supernatural, by something above science that no one can deny. And that confirmation stands to this day, because some, once something is confirmed, it can't be unconfirmed. It, it, has, it has happened. And so Peter is reminding his audience there that, yes, we can trust this message We can trust the message of a God who gave himself for us, who came as a man and decided to die a cruel death by a Roman instrument of death, by a Roman instrument of torture. To let us know that he's serious about this partnership, that it is a blood covenant, that blood was spilled in our place when it should have been ours. He did it. This is the character of God. Will you believe and come to the Father? Because he's waiting for you with open arms. He's waiting for you to confirm back your desire to join him. All you have to do, as this graphic indicates, and as Colossians 2, 11 and 12 say, is believe and be baptized in his name to receive forgiveness. And so join him in his body and join all of us in declaring the administration of this mystery and in following this character of God, learning about God, learning about life eternal. I'll leave you with this last scripture. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you have life in His name. This is God's calling card once again. Have a great afternoon. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.